good to see you all this morning. We want to uh, make a special note of you if you're visiting. We want you to know that we are glad that you're here. We uh, thank you for coming this morning. Trust that the Lord has already spoken to your heart through the music and then also through the remainder of the things that we have this morning, the preaching, teaching of God's word, as well as uh, we'll be taking communion as well this morning. So we have several activities planned um, for worship, and so I pray and trust that you will be blessed by it. Um, I, would, I would ask that you'd be in prayer for my family. They're all homesick this morning, and uh, they, yeah, they all, I'm, I'm, I'm good, and so... Um, <laughs> I will not be here next week. I'm already planning it. No, I'm just kidding. I, I'm, I feel great, and so it, it hasn't gotten to me yet, but they're all home with fevers and just the whole, the whole nine yards, if you will. And so uh, please join me in praying for them. Uh, also, I appreciate what Ron said. He said at the end of one of the songs, he says, Church, let's lift our voice up to the Lord. Do you guys remember him saying that? And I love that he used the singular term voice there, because uh, we are one voice, and we're lifting up one voice to the Lord. And one, of the greatest, one of the greatest aspects of worship, I believe that the scriptures clearly teach, is when a number of people come together and they lift up one voice, meaning that they're unified, that they're in, and they're in harmony. It doesn't mean that they're all singing the same song, right? That's how we do it. But it literally, it means that when we lift up one voice to the Lord, meaning that we're in harmony together, um, built around humility, built around graciousness and kindness and forgiveness, when we're in harmony together, it is, it is very uh, glorifying to our God. And so when we do it in music, it's great. When we open up God's word, it's great. But when we, when we work together in harmony, it's, it's even more worshipful. So thank you so much, uh, Ron, for using a singular term, which maybe you didn't even plan, but you did a great job of lifting our voice, our singular voice to the Lord. Hebrews chapter number eight, we're going to read the entire chapter and try to, try to unfold it all this morning. It's, uh, it's really one central theme, and I, I didn't want to break it into several weeks, but to just focus on some of the main points, we're going to read it and pray, and then we're just going to walk through it um, verse by verse and, and talk a little bit about some of the, the contrast that are made in Hebrews chapter number 8. And uh, the main purpose this morning is that we see Christ as being a better high priest. That would be the theme of Hebrews chapter number 8, that Christ is a better high priest than that of the Levitical priesthood or the Old Testament priesthood. And there are several reasons why Christ is a, is a better high priest and um, my prayer is this morning that as, as, you, as we walk through this passage of Scripture, that you'll be challenged in your heart to make Christ that mediator, um, that person to whom you go um, in order to access God. That you would go to Christ. To, many people and many religions today have all different ways of accessing God. Um, some teach you access God through certain sacraments or ceremonies or sacrifices. Um, some teach that you access God by coming to church or by putting money in the offering plate. You, you access God by a, a number of different things, by good deeds or by works or by taking the Lord's Supper, or you access God through baptism. Or They teach some way in which you can access God based upon your own merits, and Jesus makes it very clear in John 14 and verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can access God, and no one can come to the Father lest they come through me. He gives us a very clear statement. There really is no ambiguity to that statement. It is clear that if you want to come into the Father's presence and find acceptance, find favor, find blessing, you have to go through Jesus. There is no other way. And I just want to be simple this morning. I just want to be straightforward. It, there's not, there's not, um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to speak over your head or under your feet. I just want to speak to you and, uh, and to challenge your heart. If you're here with us and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, that you maybe you have been taught in your upbringing that we come to God through some other means, I want to challenge that belief this morning. I want to challenge it from God's word because truly that's the only source of truth we have. 
And I want to challenge that belief. If you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, I just want to challenge you to know the type of access that you do have to God. And Hebrews 4 says that we can come boldly. Amen? We can come boldly into the presence of God based on the fact that we come in the person of Jesus Christ. We come with him as our representative. So um, join me. We'll, we'll read the chapter, then we're going to go back and just walk through it together. The Bible says, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, that the Lord set up and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who, are, who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a, a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ, Jesus Christ, has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since he is enacted, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need or no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Let me just stop and make a comment here. This is a reference to all of us. Um, the, the covenant that he made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah began as a covenant with them, but has been expanded to a covenant with all of mankind, uh, Jews and Gentiles. This new covenant, this gospel covenant, this grace-oriented covenant is not just for the Jews, uh, for the Israelites and, the, and those of Judah, but this is for all of mankind. The Bible says that anybody who comes to Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, will be accepted by Christ and will be given access to God the Father. So I want you to know that this call this morning is a universal call. It is to be preached to all of mankind. The Bible goes on to say, um, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day which I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After these days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their heart. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. In other words, there won't be any need for teachers. It's not, the necessity is not for teachers today. We don't come to church because we need teachers. We are indwelt by the very spirit of the most high God. He is the greatest teacher of all. We don't come to church because we need teachers. We come to church for the body, for the unity, for the purpose of Christ to glorify and honor and worship him. And, and yes, we open his word because this is what he tells us to do. But the ultimate communicator of God's word is the spirit of God. He says, we will have no need for teachers. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready, is ready to vanish away. The Bible starts off in chapter number 8, in verse number 1, it starts off this passage with, now this is the point. This is the main point. That's the title of the message, the, the main point. Maybe you've been in a class before where the teacher or the preacher spent a number of, uh, much of the time, let's just say if a sermon is an hour long, the preacher might spend 45 minutes of introduction, and at the end of his introduction he says to you, and this is the point. 
And at that point, he begins to point out or unfold or unpack what all of the rest of the message was about. His introduction might be very long, but the, but the point is this. The main point, the main theme is this. The, the whole of Hebrews, chapters 1 through 7, and I believe also beyond this, the, the rest of Hebrews is to point out the main point. And that is that Jesus Christ is the better high priest. Jesus Christ is the better intercessor. This book is written as a, it's not a letter. This book is really written as a sermon. So we would almost see this sermon again as a long introduction and a short sermon, but a very significant and a very important sermon. It also, when you see a statement like this, it carries with it the idea of seeing verily, verily, or surely, surely in the Word of God. It's meant to say to us to listen up. It's meant to spark an interest. It's meant to cause us to sit up in our seats and be ready to receive something from, from God. If the introduction or the first seven chapters has done any capturing of your attention or any bringing of excitement in you about the rest, this portion should only drive it home more because now we're into the main part of the message, the true theme of the message. So as we get to chapter number eight, what we're, what we're introduced to is the climax, the pinnacle, um, the point. We see all throughout Hebrews this idea of don't be dull. Remember we talked about that a few, maybe a month ago or so? Don't be a dull Christian. A dull Christian is one who doesn't have a, doesn't have a point, right? So it makes sense that here he begins this and says, here is the Here's the point. Here's the point that keeps us from becoming a dull Christian. Here's the point that keeps us from falling away. Here's the point that keeps us from becoming lackadaisical in our Christianity. We just simply have to keep our eyes focused on Christ. If we keep our eyes focused on Christ, we will not become dull in our Christianity. We will not be in danger of falling away or slipping away or sliding away because we will have our focus on the point. There will be a point to all the things that we do. The point seems to be in this chapter, as well as really the remainder of the book of Hebrews, it seems to be the contrast between the high priestly work of Jesus Christ and the high priestly work of the Levites, the Levitical priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood. There's a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, a contrast between the Mosaic Covenant and the, um, and the Abrahamic Covenant, a contrast between the Covenant of Works and the Covenant of Grace, a contrast between the Covenant of Law and the Covenant of Faith, the Covenant of Obedience and the Covenant of Trust. There's a contrast in, in, in chapter number 8, and it also continues between these different, between these two covenants. And they're defined by using different terms and um, different words to describe them. And again, the goal is to drive home, to force into our hearts a faith in Christ and what He has accomplished and what He has done to mediate us, to mediate for us and bring us into the presence of God. We want to remember that the high priest, the main purpose of a high priest and the word priest literally means to be, to be a bridge builder. The main purpose of the high priest was to build a bridge for us to enter into the presence of God. Okay? That is what the high priest did. He built a bridge. He enabled mankind who was fallen, who was sinful, who was undeserving and unworthy. The high priest would build a bridge so that that undeserving, unworthy, uh, sinful human being could enter into the presence of a holy, just, and sovereign God and not experience condemnation, but experience acceptance. Now, if you're here this morning and you're with us and you are interested in drawing near to God, if that is your interest, if that's your heart, you say, you know what, Pastor John, I really would like to draw near to God. Some people don't want to draw near to God. It's the most fearful, horrible thing to think about drawing near to God. But if you're here with us this morning and your heart's desire is to draw near to God for help, salvation, and strength, but you know yourself to be a sinner, 
you know yourself to be unworthy, you know yourself to be undeserving, then this sermon is for you. If you're here this morning and you're sitting amongst us and you have no desire to fellowship with God, you have no desire to commune with God, you have no desire to walk in His strength, to experience His power, to know His presence in your life, if you have no desire for that, or maybe you have a desire for that, but you don't recognize yourself as being sinful, undeserving, and unworthy, then this sermon is not for you. Okay, this is, this is meant for a people, this is written for a people who see themselves as unworthy to enter into God's presence, but have a great passion and desire to enter into God's presence. This is a real encouraging message to the Hebrew people of this day who found it difficult for hundreds of years to enter into God's presence, and now they're being allowed to, they're having it opened up to them in and through Jesus Christ. And this is not just a promise for them, but this is a promise for us. This access that, we have, that they have been granted is also access that we have been granted. We can come into the presence of the Most High God today, and we can experience all that He has for us. And we can come in and through Christ so let's do some contrasting this morning. As we walk through this text, we're just going to contrast the Levitical priesthood and then the Christ priesthood. And which one is more capable of bringing us into God's presence? You'll notice in verse number one, the Bible says, Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest. So if you want to underline that, this starts the contrast. Um, the author or the preacher of this sermon starts the contrast by describing the uniqueness, the difference, the significant difference between the high priestly work of Christ and that of the Levitical priesthood. And the idea of the word such here means this is distinction. There is a difference between the work of Jesus Christ and the work of the priest in the Old Testament. There is a distinction. There is an, there is an elevation. Uh, Christ Jesus has... Ultimately, the Old Testament priesthood was meant to point to being fulfilled in Christ. So anytime that human beings are used as an example of that which is divine, it's always going to fall short. It's never going to be perfect. It's, it's always going to, it's always going to um, not reach the goal. When we worship God, we don't worship God in a way that he's worthy of, do we? We don't reach the level of worship that God would say, hey, listen, that was absolutely what I'm worthy of. When we worship God, we expect him to graciously receive our flawed worship, right? We expect him to graciously accept a worship from a, from a, a group of people that are doing their best to worship him, but doing it in a very, very flawed way. I know if they turned off, if they turned my microphone on when we were singing, you would understand that more fully. We are worshiping God in a flawed way, but we're asking him to graciously receive our worship. And we're worshiping him and we're representing him as flawed human beings. And it's never going to reach the standard of which he is worthy, but it doesn't mean that he has changed what we're called to do. He is a unique he is a distinct, he is a transcendent high priest. He is elevated above all that we could ever imagine or think. His ways are so far, as far as the heavens are from the earth, are his ways above our ways. He transcends our very thinking. There was a song written many, many years ago about the 26 letters of, the, of, of our language and the idea that you take all of those 26 letters and you make up as many, as big and as bold of a word as you can make and you'll never reach what the Lord God is worthy of. You'll never be able to speak words that reach the transcendence that he is. It doesn't mean that we don't develop words. It doesn't mean that we don't use words like God is awesome. No, God is way beyond awesome. If we can think of the most transcendent, the, the biggest, the boldest, the most amazing word that man could put together, it still would fall short of the glory of our God. Folks, this is what makes us united as a body. This is what brings us together to understand that none of us can reach any closer to the glory of God. 
None of us is better than the other one. None of us is more significant. None of us is better at reaching him. It is Christ who reaches him for us. And it is by grace and mercy. It is by his name and the power of his spirit by which we enter into God's presence. There isn't one of us that's more capable of entering. And listen to me. When we live as if we are more capable than other people of glorifying God, we demean him. We drag him down to our level. We must leave him elevated. We must leave him transcendent. We must let him be beyond us. Because then and only then can he receive proper worship. This is such a high priest. This is a unique high priest. This is a significant high priest that, yes, God made an earthly picture of it that would always fall short. But we do not have a high priest that falls short. We have a high priest that reaches the transcendence of God because he is God. Jesus Christ is God. So we have such a high priest. Here comes the comparisons. The first comparison that we have is the comparison of being seated versus standing. The Bible says in the next phrase describing the transcendence of our high priest, that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. This is a significant statement because high priests did not sit down. Their ministry was one of standing. Their ministry was one of continuously action, continuously working. The Bible even describes them just two chapters from now in Hebrews chapter number 10. And he says, and every high priest stands daily in the temple. So here you have high priest that is earthly, that is human, that is standing, constantly making sacrifices day after day, year after year, making sacrifices with the hope and the intention of paying for mankind's sin, dealing with mankind's sin so that mankind can enter into the presence of God. Here you have a high priest that is seated. He's sitting down. This implications of this statement is simply that the work of Christ in, from the standpoint of atonement, the work of Christ from the standpoint of sacrifice, the work of Christ from the standpoint of making a payment for sins, his work has been completed. The sacrificial work of the Levites, the sacrificial work of the Old Testament continues every day, continues every year. And any religion that would teach us that you need to continuously make sacrifices to be in favor with God misappropriates sacrifices and misrepresents Jesus Christ. Sacrifices, the sacrifice for our sins is complete. It is finished. It is done. It is not continual. It is a satisfactory sacrifice. It is a completed sacrifice. It is a sacrifice through which Christ Jesus can now sit on the right hand of the throne of the majesty of God or the right hand of the throne of God. It is a sacrifice by which in John 19 and verse 30, Jesus Christ can cry out from the cross and say, it is finished. Jesus Christ's work of atonement. Jesus Christ's sacrifice was a completed sacrifice. The Bible tells us that he died once for sins. Let me read to you out of Hebrews 9, verse 25 and verse 26 says, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once. Jesus Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. The first comparison that we have is we have a completed work of atonement versus a continual work of atonement. 
This means that this generation, this group over here, this religious belief system will continually try to, bring, try to gain favor with God by sacrificing for their own sins. This group over here will embrace what Jesus Christ has done for them and they will know that their sacrifice is complete. They are now in favor with God based upon the sacrifice of Christ. The second comparison that's made in, the, in our text is the comparison of being a heavenly versus an earthly Two things, a heavenly versus an earthly priesthood and a heavenly versus an earthly temple. Both of them are compared here. And the terms that are used, just if you're taking notes, this would be valuable to you. The heavenly temple, the heavenly priest is called false in our text. It's called a false priesthood and a false temple. And the idea of it isn't, isn't the idea of false in an evil way. It's, it's the idea of false in the fact that it is not the real it is a copy. It's a, it's a transmission, if you will, like a, like a fax of the original document. The fax document doesn't hold the same weight as the original document holds. It's a copy of the original. So the earthly priesthood and the earthly temple are copies of something that is, that is, that is taking place in heaven. Something is happening in heaven that is real. Okay, I know we don't get, this is so difficult to get because what we see is real to us, right? Right? Amen? Okay, what the Bible says is that Christians walk by faith and not by, okay, so for a believer, what is unseen is actually more real than what is seen. So this is an illustration of that here in Hebrews chapter number 8. There's a world of things that are unseen, things that are taking place in heaven, and God has stamped them. He's made, uh, he's made a mold, right? Okay? He's made a mold for them, and then he's come down to this earth, and he's poured things into that mold, and he's made an earthly expression of that thing, which is what the priesthood was, and is what the temple was. It wasn't the real thing, but it was an expression of the real thing. Read with me. The Bible says that he is the one seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So where is Jesus Christ? He is seated and he is in heaven. So his priestly work that's going to be described here is a heavenly priestly work. The Bible says a minister in the holy places, which... The term here just describes the holy of holies, the place where the sacrifice was made in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. And again, this is the idea of true versus false. This is the real thing. This is the authentic thing. It's not a copy. It's the real thing. For every high priest is appointed to offer sacrifices and gifts. Thus, it was necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now, if we were on the earth, he would... He would not be a priest at all since these priests are offering gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So notice that these are, these things on the earth, the priest, the temple, they are copies. They are shadows of the heavenly things. In other words, there are things in heaven that, yes, they, they far surpass the, the elements that we see on this earth that are visible to us, but they, but they are on the earth as an expression of of the heavenly things. Okay, does that make sense? The heavenly things are the real things. You can go through all of the routines and rituals of the earthly things and have not embraced the heavenly and you'll miss the picture completely. You'll miss, for lack of a better term, you'll miss the boat. These are copies and shadows. They're, they're meant to point us to something. They're meant to prepare us for something, right? Right? You see a shadow on a wall, you're preparing for the, that which, the shadow can do nothing, but, but what is, that which is real can do something. So you're being prepared for that which is real. So, so it's so important that we get this. So as we see the shadow and the preparation, this, this text and further beyond this text is telling us that once that which is real has come, do we have any need for the shadow anymore? Do we have any need for the copy anymore? If we have the fulfillment of the earthly priesthood, and if we have the fulfillment of the earthly temple in heaven and it's complete and Christ has come and established it, the sacrifice has been made, do we still need the shadows? And the answer is, and the answer that, that uh, the writer of Hebrews gives us is no. 
We, don't, we no longer need the earthly priesthood. We no longer need the earthly temple because we have a heavenly temple and our bodies have become the temple because we are a reflection of Christ who is the heavenly temple. He even refers to himself here as the true tent. And if you study other texts of the Bible, you'll find that the tent can be referencing one of two things. It can be referencing the tabernacle, which in the Old Testament was a tent move around, right? Or a tent is referring to his body. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? He said, tear this temple down, and what's going to happen? And in three days, I will. And then he says, the temple that I speak of is my, is my body. So Jesus Christ is the temple. And we, um, 1 Corinthians 6, we become the temple of the Holy Spirit by faith. We participate in that. So he says, they are copies, the earthly things are copies and shadow of a heavenly thing. For when Moses was about to erect the earthly tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. This comes from Exodus 25, I believe it is, where the pattern is given to him. And then it's reminded, they're reminded of this in, in Jeremiah chapter, I uh, can't think of what chapter it is, but in Jeremiah, they're reminded of this in the prophecy of Jeremiah. Now, it's interesting. What's happening here is the Lord is showing Moses a pattern. So here there is, a, there is the real thing, and the Lord is taking the real thing, and he's giving Moses a pattern of the real thing, and he's saying, I want you to build the earthly thing like this. I want you to build it just like I'm giving it to you, exactly like I'm giving it to you, which the pattern that he was given was a heavenly pattern. It was something that was real that God was revealing to Moses to build here on this earth. He says, to build it according to the pattern as shown you on the mountain. But, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent that the old, than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. So here we have the idea of mediation. This is where the high priestly work comes in. He was simply a mediator. He stood between people and God. He mediated on our behalf. So Jesus Christ becomes a better high priest because he is a better mediator. And then he has a better covenant. And we'll look at covenant here in, in just a moment um, but he goes on, he says, for if that first covenant would have been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second or a second covenant. So we see this contrast being made between the, the priest of the earth, the Levitical priesthood, and that of Christ. One is an earthly priesthood, one is a heavenly priesthood, one is based upon the law, the other one is based upon grace. One results in Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. But let me say this to you. It's so important when you're dealing with mediation. Um, this, this, this simple phrase as Christ being at the right hand of the Father is super significant to mediation. The idea of it is, is equality. That when Christ mediates on our behalf, he mediates with an authority that no man has. He mediates with the rights that no man has. He comes to the Father with absolute authority to say and even demand because he is equal and one with the Father. He enters into his presence as oneness with the Heavenly Father. He enters into his presence with authority. So when he stands there on our behalf, he has equal authority to the judge. He is a unique high priest. He is a significant, he is a transcendent high priest far beyond what we can imagine or think. We can, we can imagine a, a, an attorney that you would have that would have the same authority as the judge sitting behind the bench. You would be in pretty good shape, wouldn't you? You would consider yourself to be very confident to win the case if your attorney has equal authority to the judge behind the bench. This is what's referred to when the, the writer here says that he is seated at the right hand of the majesty, or that's another term for God. He's seated at the right hand of God. He enters into his presence. The Bible says that he ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus Christ intercedes on our behalf as one with God. 
It ought not to surprise us because he is one with God. And beyond that, he is God. So we have this contrast, the, the high priest of the Levites and the high priest of Christ. Now we enter into a contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. And that's what's going to be the rest of this chapter. And let's just read it together. And I want to try to unfold some things. We're going to look at the old covenant first, also referred to as the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of the law, the covenant of works. And then we'll look at the new covenant in closing. And and I want to unfold it in such a way that you will embrace it. That's what my heart is, is that you will embrace the new covenant. We want to remember that a covenant is a promise. It's a contract. It's an agreement. Okay, and like two parties coming together and saying, hey, I'll do this and you do this and, and then we'll have, we'll have harmony together. Two, two, um, two opposing armies might come together and they might make a covenant. They might make a pact together. And that because of that pact and that covenant, they then will live at peace for, for a season or for however, however long that covenant might last. Okay? Some covenants are one-sided. Some covenants are two-sided. What that means is, um, imagine uh, some covenants, the one side of the covenant does all of the work. There's nothing for this side of the covenant to do. That side of the covenant is, is that the covenant is sealed by the works of one side of the party. And there's other covenants where, the, where, the, where both sides of the parties do something in the process. And, and in the end, if they both fulfill their parts of the covenant, then it works out well. And that's what we would call the old covenant and there are several things in our text that describe the Old Covenant. Let's just walk through them together. First of all, the Bible says the first covenant was faulty. It says, for he finds fault. He finds fault with the first covenant. There's something about the first covenant that was faulty. And let me just say this to you. It's important to know that the first covenant wasn't faulty because it was made faulty, because God failed to make a covenant that was, uh, was capable of doing what he wanted it to do. The first covenant was faulty because it was meant to be faulty. God established the first covenant for the purpose of and for the sake of establishing a second covenant. In other words, the second covenant was not a, a secondary plan. If you go back to Genesis chapter number 12, you actually have the second covenant given to Abraham. And then you have the first covenant, the old covenant given to Moses. And then you have the, then you have the Abrahamic covenant given or the new covenant given back to God's people. So it's a faulty, it's a faulty covenant by, by purpose. It's a faulty covenant for a reason. It's not meant to bring salvation. The Bible says that the first covenant or the old covenant was meant to bring condemnation. It was meant to point out man's sinfulness. It was meant to show us that we were unworthy and undeserving. Remember this, a man cannot enter into the presence of God or be accepted by God lest he sees himself as unworthy, lest he accepts his sinfulness and embraces what Christ Jesus has done for him in the cross. So it's so valuable that he sends the first covenant of works or of the law to bring man to a place where they see themselves as sinful. He tells us in Romans chapter number 3 that the law was given to make every man guilty before God. There really is no ambiguity about that statement. The law was given, the first covenant was given to Moses so that everybody in the world might be what? Might see themselves as good people? No, the law was given so that everybody would be guilty before God. And there's not a single person that walked, that's ever walked on the face of this earth other than Jesus Christ himself that could claim to have kept the law fully. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God or the law of God, which is the expression of his, of his glory. So first of all, it was a faulty it was a faulty system. The first covenant was faulty. The second thing about the first covenant, it was, it was legalistic. In, in other words, the first covenant was built around obedience. Um, he says in the, in the verses following, he says that they were not able to continue in my covenant, or they did not continue in my covenant, because it was a legalistic covenant. It was based upon obey, and you will be blessed, disobey, and you will be cursed. By the way, obedience has to be perfect. I mean, a lot of us would like to see that whole obey and be blessed, disobey and be cursed, and we would like to see that in a partial way because 
I can, obey, I can obey in accordance to what I am capable of doing and within my strength, but the reality of it is the Lord doesn't require us to obey in what we can do. He requires us to obey perfectly. He tells him in the Gospels, he's like, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven also is perfect. So it was flawed because it was legalistic. It demanded something of the other party that they could not present. The Bible tells us in Romans 8 and verse 7 that the the carnal mind is an enmity, is at war with God, and it cannot submit to the law of God. And it will not submit to the law of God, nor can it, is the, I think, the exact phrase. It's a legalistic covenant. Because it's a legalistic covenant, nobody can ever attain God's favor through it. Not only is it a legalistic covenant, but it is a cooperative covenant. Notice that he says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Let's go on here. Um, uh, Let's see here. Verse 9, not like the covenant that I made with my fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Notice that it is a cooperative covenant. He says that he took them by the hand. In other words, Jesus Christ was, or God, was helpful in the process. He didn't leave them alone, per se, but he did not accomplish the fullness of the covenant. It was a cooperative covenant. God holds their hand, or he walks with them through it, but there is a, there is a two sides to this covenant. You keep your part of the bargain, and God will keep his part of the bargain. And we know that, again, according to the scriptures, that that's an impossibility. Not only that, but it was a divisive covenant. In other words, it led people away from God. It not, its purpose of the new covenant was to bring people close to God. The, the result of the old covenant is to push them away from God. Um, it, is to, it actually makes us more sinful. The law makes us more sinful, not less sinful. And the last verse, verse 13, is it's passing away. And the old covenant is passing away. The Bible says it's ready to be, it's ready to be, um, it's ready to disappear is the wording there. It's ready to disappear. The old covenant is ready to disappear. You say, well, Pastor John, why is the old covenant still prevalent? Why is the old covenant still here? Uh, Two reasons. There are lost people that need the old covenant and there's flesh that needs the old covenant. And it will pass away completely at some point, but it still has a purpose. The lost still need to see their depravity, and your flesh and my flesh still need to see our depravity. We still need to be reminded that we need to get out of the way sometimes, don't we? Don't we? The law is very good at that, because we see how frail we are in light of the law. Now, for the good news, the new covenant, this is the one I want to just, I want to impress on your heart to, to embrace it. The Bible says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And here it is. This is just a simple few things if you're taking notes. Notice, first of all, that it's a one-sided covenant. The covenant is one-sided. The Lord is making a covenant with these people. And and the implications of this phrase is that the Lord is going to do everything that is necessary for this covenant to be fulfilled. There's nothing for us to do from the perspective of works. It's the opposite of the old covenant. The Bible says the old covenant was built upon works and and, um, uh, deserving. The new covenant is built upon grace and gifts. Okay, It's not deserved. It's gifted to us. It's a one-sided covenant. The covenant is made by God, the Bible says. The covenant is accomplished by Jesus Christ. And the covenant is administered by the Holy Spirit. The new covenant, man's participation in the new covenant is simply this. Man is either an acceptor of the new covenant or a rejecter of the new covenant. Man either submits to the new covenant or rejects the new covenant. Man either embraces the new covenant or refuses to embrace the new covenant. And then men are participants, are, are recipients and benefactors, but they are not players. The new covenant was fulfilled in Christ. It's done. It's complete. The way that we partake of it is we embrace it by faith. One of the greatest dangers of our culture today, folks, is we embrace works. We think that we're going to enter into God's presence by works, and Satan has convinced us of that. Listen, the only way that you can come to God is by faith. It's by trusting in what Christ has done. So it is a covenant that is one-sided. Number two, it is a covenant that will change you from the inside. 
He says, he says here, I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. In other words, God's going to transform you from the inside out. This new covenant is not built around external obedience, but it's built around internal change. God will make you, if you're sitting here today and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will become a new creature. I mean, the, the, the literal idea of it is, is if you were a lion before, you will become a lamb. It's a, so supernatural, you will not be the same person any longer. The new covenant will take you and it will turn you inside out and it will make you into a, a new person. It is not built upon external obedience, but internal change, and it results in external obedience. It is, will produce those things. It will take a, a hard heart and make it soft. It will take a rebellious heart and make it humble. It will take a hateful heart and make it loving. It will take a revengeful heart and make it forgiving. It will take a discouraged heart and make it hopeful. It will take a discontented heart and make it content. It will take an innocent heart and make it, or a guilty heart and make it innocent. And it will take a sinner's heart and make it a saint's. This is what God has the power to do. Listen, if you're sitting here today and you say, God, has, does, God, God does not have the power to do that. I will submit to you, the Bible teaches us that the same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead on the third day is the same power that he has to change you and to change me. He has the power to do it. He has the power to do it. The issue is not whether or not he's powerful enough. The issue is, is do we believe him? Do we have the faith to embrace that he is powerful enough? Do we have the faith to anticipate or expect that he's powerful enough? When we walk into the realm of temptation and sin, do we expect God to deliver us or do we expect to fall? You see, we can't minimize our God and expect to win. We must maximize our God and expect to win. It is a life-changing, transforming thing that is the new covenant. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And then Exodus 36.26 says, The Lord will take out your heart. This is like heart surgery, right? He will take out your hard heart. He'll take out your rebellious heart. He'll take out your, your bitter heart. He'll take out your angry heart. He'll take out your discontented heart. He'll take out your frustrated heart. He'll take out your lustful heart. He'll take out your drunken heart. He'll take out your heart and give you a new heart. We need a new heart. It's not about him, it's not about him reviving our old heart. It's about him changing our heart. And listen to me, if you're sitting here this morning and you want to be close to God, he can change your heart. He has the power to do it. It is a, it is a, it is a heart-changing covenant. It is a relationship-restoring covenant. I love this phrase, and this is a phrase that the Jews would have embraced uh, in, a, in an exciting way. He says, I will be their God. This is a restoration term. I will be their God again, and they will be my people. This is a, a family term. The new covenant is meant to bring us back into a relationship with God. It's meant to bring us back into the family of God. It's meant to, re to restore us into his favor. This is an intimate term. It's a term that you would use for your wife or your husband that you're walking closely with and, and tightly with. God is able to restore relationships, our relationships in and through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 tells us that he breaks down the walls that used to divide us from God and he brings us close to him. It is a wisdom producing covenant. We will no longer need help. John 14 tells us that the Holy Spirit has been sent to help us understand these things. The last thought in regards to this is it is a sin forgiving and forgetting covenant. It is a sin forgiving and forgetting covenant. It's not, a, it's not a John Preeman becomes a perfect individual who has never sinned before. It is a God in heaven has forgiven John for all of his sins, past, present, and future. And the idea of forgetting is simply this. God does not forget. He knows everything. It's simply that he will never bring them up against you again. This is the type of covenant that the Lord offers to us. It is a covenant that says God will forget your sins. God will forgive your sins. God will be merciful to your sins and he will never hold them against you. Wouldn't it be great to not be accountable for our sins? 
Do you know how, and and let me say this, don't take this lightly, because I would hate for someone to walk out of here and decide to sin more, because that would describe someone who doesn't understand the grace that God gives. But I will tell you this, that you 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 can be set free from the accountability of your sins through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Do you know why? Because he was held accountable for your sins. If you're a believer this morning, Jesus was held accountable for your sins. And therefore, you can be set free from it. Psalm 103 and verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. In closing, let me give you a few thoughts. Which covenant would you like to live under today? You're you're under one or the other. You're either under the works covenant or you're under the faith covenant. Let me give you a few thoughts. Both covenants, both covenants desire is to have favor with God. The old covenant, we make ourselves favorable with God by our works. The new covenant, God makes us favorable with him by Jesus' works. Both, covenant demand, both covenants demand perfection. The old covenant, perfection is on our own merits. The new covenant, perfection is through Jesus Christ's gifted righteousness. Both covenants demand sin to be dealt with. The old covenant, we pay for our own sins. The new covenant, Jesus Christ paid for our sins on the cross. Both covenants hope to result in eternal life. The old covenant, hope in good works, earning eternal life. The new covenant, hope in Jesus Christ, gifting eternal life. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I close with these two verses, 1 John 5.12. Whoever has the Son has life. And then John 3.36, whoever believes on the Son has life. The answer this morning is, is you have two paths, two directions. One is completely built around you. The other one is completely built around Jesus Christ. One ends up in condemnation and eternal judgment with you paying for your own sins. One is built around Jesus Christ completely satisfying the wrath of God for you and leads to eternal life. One, you have to do everything to earn God's favor. One, you just simply have to trust in Jesus Christ. If you're with us this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, my prayer for you is that you will bow your knee before his gracious and merciful, sovereign, mighty Godhead and say, I submit, I surrender your way, not my way. And that you will become one of these under the new covenant. If you're under the old covenant, my prayer for you is that you would forsake it and embrace Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the covenant that you have made, the the redemptive work through which and in which we can be saved. And not just be saved, but be changed and be transformed and be renewed. I pray that you would just bless your word, bless the message that your Holy Spirit would change lives and hearts for your glory. And we give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen.